Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. For parents of special needs children, perhaps the most stressful and anxious time is when you're first told that your child has problems. That first diagnosis is such a shock. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to think. You feel completely overwhelmed with everything. One of the most helpful things for parents of special needs children is when they hear stories of other families who have already gone through similar experiences and can share what they did. The challenges and struggles are universal no matter what the disability or the severity. Just knowing that someone else out there has faced those same worries and fears and has taken the time to tell their story can be very reassuring. In this episode of Special Parents Confidential, I'd like to introduce you to just such a parent. In 1970, Donna Kirk, who, with her husband Ed, is from a town near Toronto, Canada, had gone to the hospital for the birth of their first son, Matthew. But problems occurred, and their baby had oxygen loss during the birth and suffered severe brain damage. The next day, their son was transferred to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, where the doctor told them that their son was basically, in his words, a vegetable with a heartbeat. This doctor advised them to institutionalize their son and have another baby as soon as possible, implying that they should just forget about their son. Well, Donna and Ed ignored what their doctor told them and took their baby home as soon as they could. They fought for Matthew and cared for him throughout his entire life, and in the process, proved the first doctor and many other people were wrong about Matthew's abilities. Ed and Donna had two other children after Matthew, a brother and sister. In 2010, at the age of 40, Matthew died, and Donna has written a book called Finding Matthew, about his life, his challenges, and the struggles that she and her husband and family went through, from his devastating diagnosis to his ultimately successful life and becoming a contributing member to society. The book shows that how even the most severely disabled people have incredible gifts and how a family can work together to get through any adversity. Donna spoke with me about her book through Skype, and the first thing I asked her was to describe the night that Matthew was born and the terrifying uncertainty of the first few days that she and her husband experienced. Well, of course, right away we were totally shocked. I mean, it would be a natural reaction, and, and uh, that we, we were shocked for quite a long time because that, that, that first shock was you, you don't expect to go in to deliver your first child and have the doctor tell you that, the, that he was um, lost uh, oxygen for 20 minutes, and mm -hmm. it took them forever to, well, he said forever, to revive him, and, and we were we just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, it, and it was a, going to be a perfect baby, just like babies should be. Right. Um, so, uh, and of course, we were terribly upset, and, um, but the, and dismayed um, that, that things could have gone so terribly wrong. But um, later, we, when we'd had a chance to um, talk to some doctors, and particularly the physician who uh, delivered him, then we became angry because we just decided that it, that it, was, that it was his fault. So, mm -hmm. whether it, I mean, there were many factors involved in, in what went wrong, but um, yeah, it, it was. I think it was negligence. Now, had that been our um, maybe second or third child, we might have done something about it, but we were totally, um, we were, it was our first experience and, and we just, we just didn't know what to do. Right. Right. And you know, and it's, uh, when it comes to matters like that too, there's, uh, there isn't always any kind of recourse, you know, other than, well, here in America, of course, there's the option of suing. I don't know if that's the same thing in Canada, but that's not really what so many parents, uh, want to have happen, when situations like this happen, you want to see some other sort of uh, 
thing. You know, the doctor should be at least put on notice or some kind of discipline action. Absolutely. There should have been a review. And and maybe there was, but we never um, heard from the hospital that there was a review. And that's an excellent point, John. Um, and that should happen. But um, there's a huge cover up um, in, in hospitals, um, in my opinion here. And um, it's just now starting to be a little bit more transparent, but I think they have a long way to go. Right, yeah. And it's the same thing here in America. It's all based uh, more on uh, hospitals covering themselves and uh, lawyers stepping in and money, money, money. And the parents are really left out of the whole process. That's right. But the money thing now, I mean, having gone through what we went through, and um, fortunately, um, we were in a position to buy a few things for Matthew and to to seek out the, the very best of the best, but folks, and particularly in the U.S., where that where healthcare doesn't cover a lot of this, um, a lawsuit, a, a, a successful lawsuit, could certainly help with, um, with with the huge cost of looking after a person with, with serious disabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're, they're you know it's 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 not the option that anyone ever wants because it just drags things out, unfortunately. And the lawyers get rich, and and it's just and it's. It's thoroughly disagreeable. Right, right. Um, now, going on here, what what amazed me so much, though, about uh, when I was reading the book is that you had been told to put Matthew into an institution immediately and then go on to have other children as if he didn't exist. Or maybe that might not have been the intention, but it just came off that way when they told you that. How hard was it for you to not want to assault the doctors when they were telling you this? Well, it was very hard for me. I, I, I reacted instantly. And this was, we were told that when um, Matthew was probably about seven or eight days old and he was at Sick Kids Hospital and we spoke to the, uh, the head pediatrician. And um, so I, I was just, I was absolutely outraged. And, and, and I told him what I thought. Mm-hmm. But, and we were so stunned. And it took me a moment. But um, I, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't waste any time after that, and I just told him he had no right to talk about a human being that way. And mm-hmm. and they, they they just looked down their nose at me. I'll, I'll never forget it. I can I can see them clearly still, forty five years later. Mm. Those kind of things never leave you. I know it's a, it's so weird uh, when you know people today dealing with doctors and they're uh, they're mostly more human. But back then, uh, you know, the idea was the doctor was God, and no one dared dispute them. Yeah, well, and and two, back then, there were, in Canada at least, um, institutions. Right. And anybody who was who had Down syndrome, who experienced what Matthew experienced, and, and the prognosis was not a good one, a lot of parents placed their kids in institutions. And I think that, that number one, the doctors didn't have the benefit of a lot of people who decided to keep their child right. and and see the progress that that child could make. So they're, they're, they had a very poor knowledge of what could happen. Oh, yeah. So it was self-defeating for the parents and the child, these institutional opportunities. Right. We had the same thing here in America. I grew up in the 60s, and I can remember clearly there were a couple of kids in our neighborhood area who had disabilities, and they were sent to an institutional-type school during the day. And what was really uh, so weird for me is I remember my mom saying, well, you can't go play with them. And I'd say, well, why not? And they said, well, you might get it, too. 
because they, this she came from you know grew up back during the depression and the idea was that all this stuff was contagious and so that's that's unfortunately the way people thought back then and it's just yeah. uh it's just overwhelming to me um <laughs> It, it, it absolutely is. And, and of course, those same people thought cancer was catching, too. So Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as I read the book, you know, as, as Matthew grew older, I was impressed how about how you and your husband continued to fight for him to be able to have the treatments and the care that we now take for granted. Can you contrast the differences of what the care was like for children with disabilities back then versus how things could be now? Well, I, I think um, uh, back then, um, this is Matthew was born in 1970. Um, there wasn't the, the public awareness, um, but in those days, uh, people parent, parents had banded together as early as the 50s to form what they called then associations for retarded children, mm-hmm. which are now called community living associations, and are in fact uh, funded by. Um, provincial and um, government in, in this province and in other provinces as well. So I think that the, the, the grouping together of parents, parents sorry, who, who were, were absolutely determined to have their children in their home as a family member, and indeed they were family members, uh, made a huge difference because then you saw folks in the community um, parents uh, taking their kids to the school saying, you know, here's my kid, educate him or her. And um, I, I think that there have been, the parents were great stewards and advocates for these kids. And um, and then, of course, in the 70s, there was a, the, the government started the movement here in Ontario to close the large institutions um, because it was um, it was believed that Folks who were in in these institutions would do much better if they returned to their home communities and were you know became a member of, of members of society. So that movement was afoot, and I, and I think that made a huge difference as well. Yeah, I know it's a uh, they did about it was right around the same time here in America that they did the same thing, sort of just tried to reintegrate as much as possible. I mean, uh, unfortunately, there were some cases where. Uh, Parents had died and family were no longer available, and so I think they were. Oh yeah, management. Yep. Mm-hmm. And those kids, uh, I don't know how it was to handle in Amer- in Canada, rather, but in here in America, I think what they did was they set up community homes or foster care homes mm-hmm. for a lot yeah, of those that's kids. Still going on here too. Wow. Oh, okay. But in, in, and I'm going to be an absolute cynic about um, the closing of institutions. And I mean, uh, okay, they couched it with, "Oh, folks will do better in their own communities," mm-hmm. but there was a huge cost attached to these enormous uh, uh, facilities. There was, there was one in Aurelia, um, just north of us here, that at one point had 3,000 um, residents. Wow. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So I think the government decided, um, oh, you know, it'll be cheaper if, um, if to, to close these institutions and, and have folks return to their communities. Well, of course, they have since found out that it is not cheaper. No. So... Uh, hence, um, you know, not as good service, uh, people constantly going after the government for more. I mean, it's, it was ever thus. Right. Right. Yeah. And it just uh, all of a sudden the communities and the families had to absorb all these costs and they had no structures set up to uh, uh, cover those funds. Well, the government still here, fall, you know, covering some costs. I mean, what they did was was transfer funds. However... 
then when folks left the institutions and joined group homes, um, you know, or, you know, in some cases it actually went back into the family home, um, then their, their, their high needs became very evident and they just weren't being addressed in the institutions. And now people wanted, you know, psychiatric care for folks. They wanted, um, you know, the right health care for folks, dentistry, things that, that, in my opinion, were, were, you know, second or third rate in the large institutions. Right. Now, I also find it interesting how you were able to compare the care you were getting from Matthew in your home in Canada to how things might have been done had you been living here in the United States, where the costs of these types of services are just absolutely staggering. Can you give our listeners some of the examples of the services that you were able to get from Matthew? Well, um, as Matthew got older, he developed uh, some some mental health issues, and um, we we absolutely from our family doctor we we were sent to specialists, and of course that that was a cost of zero to us for these folks. And um, and he he had a psychiatrist. He had um, many hospitalizations because Matthew had a disorder called PICA, which folks who have uh, developmentally handicapped children will understand. It's uh, eating inedible objects. And nobody really knew why he did it. Um, um, And, of course, he was hospitalized many times to have uh, items um, such as pocket combs and toothbrushes removed from his stomach. Whole items like that. Yes, yeah. items like that. I mean, not not food, but he and he was an absolute specialist at swallowing toothbrushes. I mean, go a whole toothbrush. Wow, wow, yeah, exactly. I, I can't was, imagine. No, no, no. We we couldn't either. Um, but and we we saw neurosurgeons, we saw therapists. Um, he had um, he actually had a psychiatrist um, two years before he died who made house calls. Hmm. Because the, the the psychiatrist just loved Matthew and decided that he would be too upset to go to the, the mental health ward in, in our local hospital. So once a week, he would leave the hospital and come and um, visit Matthew in his home. Wow. And this was at a cost of nothing to us. Wow. And so in, in many ways, John, I mean, we were lucky to be living in the province of Ontario with a kid like him because you can just imagine what these the hospitalizations alone would have cost. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Exactly. And I don't think there is a, a parent in the United States, other unless you're exceedingly wealthy. I mean, I, I cannot understand or even fathom how uh, a regular family would be able to afford all those types can't, of things. Can't possibly. Mm-hmm. Can't possibly. Now, just as an aside, our daughter has uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer two years ago. And she had a bilateral mastectomy. And, uh, of course, she went through all the... The, the chemo and the radiation and then the reconstruction. And um, we're, my husband and I are paying the co-pays because she could never afford it. And she has a very good insurance plan. Wow. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's unwieldy for folks who are in high needs. Right. And, and, and here, um, fortunately, we, 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 and of course, we were very adamant that he get the best care. You have to open your mouth. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think there are plenty of folks who, who could get better care, but their, their, their caregivers um, are, are either afraid to speak up or they, they haven't been properly assessed in the first place. I mean, there's a whole um, series of, of events that should occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and sometimes they just don't. or No, they don't for what, one reason or another. And, right. and 
but I, I think in that respect, things are things are are getting better. Um, they're they're recognizing more and more that folks can learn and do learn and are important members of society and the community. And it's a slow it's slow, but it's it's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now Matthew had uh, severe brain damage at, during his birth, but as he got older, the psychiatrist who was uh, seeing Matthew suggested that he might also have autism and a form of psychosis. I was really struck about how you immediately asked if those disorders had been related to his brain injuries or uh, were they possibilities considered at all when he was younger or was it because uh, he had such, such a hard time communicating that uh, they never looked further? Well, I mean, of course, they considered everything. I mean, I, years and years ago, Matthew saw a neurologist who was convinced um, that he was having seizures. I mean, I, I, I wasn't convinced he was having seizures at all. And he put him on um, Tegretol, um, which did absolutely nothing for him. Right. Um, absolutely nothing except make him tired, which then calmed him down a bit, which we thought was, I mean, it's, it was a catch-22. I mean, right. he was... For a while, he was quieter, and then he just assimilated the drug, and and his his um his his problems surfaced again. But um, he was never he the, the psychiatrist that, who did the home visits uh, years later said uh, looked at psychosis and ruled it out um, after experimenting with psychotic medication, and he, and finally Matthew was diagnosed with agitated depression, and. Um, not uncommon in a, in a brain injured person, and he likened it to a discontrol um, sort of um, uh, condition, that, like people who have had strokes suffer from because they and 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 you can see those folks sometimes they they laugh and can't stop, they cry and can't stop. Matthew did all those things, and he did them all his life. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that discontrol. Was a was a ramification of the brain damage. Well, you know, it's interesting because you you mentioned in the book that uh, even though he was, you know, he couldn't speak and he had uh, a lot of difficulties with communication, it seemed very much like he understood what you were saying to him. And I, I imagine that must have been so frustrating for him. For him, I, yes, it was, and we could see his frustration. Uh, mind you, um, you know that one of the things the psychiatrist pointed out was that Matthew learned to use his disability to sometimes behave badly, um, particularly when he took, didn't get his own way. Like, I want, you know, let's go out in the car again when we've just gotten home. Let's go back to Tim Hortons. And he had signs for all this again when we just gotten home from the restaurant. And, and so um, he learned that, you know, we would react to his his tantrums, if you like. And, and um yeah, I mean, it, 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 there was a combination of, of things. Um, he was he was very smart. He um, one of his caregivers taught him certain signs, and then he improvised signs of his own to to indicate his wishes. And um, but he he was frustrated a lot of the time. And and um, I, I of course we tried very very hard, and he tried hard. And and mostly I think he was a he was a happy person and and uh, had had a good life despite his uh, serious disabilities. Right. Well, I wanted to also ask that, too, because you mentioned, of course, he did learn some sign language and was able to create some of his own. He learned to swim and learned to take care of himself as best he could and make some decisions. Do you think that he was really underestimated, uh, especially early on? Oh, absolutely. And, and all these kids are underestimated. And 
um, uh, Marguerite Rouleau, his his caregiver who lived with him for 15 years, said um, he's only as as handicapped as we underestimate him. Yeah. And and it it was so true. And um, she, I mean, he did have serious disabilities. However, he was also exceedingly smart and wily. And um, we respected that, and um, it, it, and we recognized it. And this is what I think we need to make the community at large recognize that although these people have disabilities, they are capable of things that, that if you give them a chance, if you try and understand, it's like anything. It's like understanding somebody else's religion. You don't have to go along with it, but you can have some sympathy and try and learn, you know, try and learn, try and understand what, what other folks are going through. And, and I think this is, um, is the most important thing that's been happening with, with our kids. It's, um, people are much more open to acceptance and, and, um, and, and their, their abilities. Yeah. Now, Matthew lived to a little past age 40, but then he died of a complication of some medical challenges such as pneumonia and a few other things. Um, now, many times people have asked you, how could you cope with this? But that kind of question is really strange, in my opinion, because you're really not given a choice in the matter. You just have to cope as best you can for your children. But you, I, what I really liked about the book is you took that question seriously and you close out your book with a list of suggestions on how parents can help cope with a child who has so many uh, uh, challenges and special needs. And you've also got ideas for keeping yourself sane throughout all the what you think are probably crazy days. Can you give us some of those suggestions? I think they're just great. Well, you know, when you read the book, you, you, people say to me, oh, my God, how did you do it? But the whole thing didn't happen. The, the 40 years didn't happen at once. Right. And it was a learning process. So on, 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 day to day, on a day-to-day level, you, you search for solutions for what's happening that day. And you may or may not find them, but but in so trying, you do meet people who can be and and generally are very supportive. So that's that's a an opening up process that that I think is you engage in and it ultimately helps. Um, um, let's see, I've, I've written a few down here, um, and of course. It, it, it makes you more determined to go the distance and, and disprove the naysayers. I mean, that was my attitude. Right. And I could see, I mean, the doctor said in the hospital, going back to, you know, when he was just born, oh, he'll, he'll never know you. He'll, he'll never progress beyond the infant stage. He, and this was when Matthew was about seven days old. And, and at that point in time, he couldn't suck. He couldn't swallow. He couldn't, he, and, and we could see that maybe the doctor was right. However, when he was three months old, we brought him home. He learned to suck. He learned to swallow. He 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 wasn't. He was taking his food um, from a bottle. He'd previously been fed by a tube. He could hold his head up. Um, a three-month-old holding his head up. And um, when he when I got to the hospital, if he was crying, and if I called to him, he stopped crying and looked in my direction. So I knew darn well that this kid was not a vegetable with a heartbeat, that he was going to improve. And had that doctor spent any time in the infant ward, he, he would have seen that. And to me, that it was just so wrong to still, I mean, when, when Matthew was discharged, she said to me, well, he has made some progress, but I, I can't promise uh, any further. And I just looked at him and I said, well, I'm not asking you to promise anything. Right. I mean, these people thought they were God. 
drove me insane. Um, you need to, and, and I, I found that you need to find people who are as dedicated as you are and have the expertise. And, and we search long and hard for, for important uh, people to help. And um, we fell short many times. I mean, Matthew walked on his toes. Matthew didn't learn to walk till he was seven. And then he walked on his toes. And I took him to um, a doctor, an orthopedic surgeon. And the guy said, well, we're going to have to snip the tendons in the back of his legs. And, you know, and I just thought, oh, I don't think so. So my family doctor said, take him to a therapist. So we did. And she said, just m manipulate his feet up and down you know, as many times as a, a day as you can, and it'll stretch those tendons. And within six months, he was walking like everybody else walks. I mean, it, you know, come on. It's just common sense. And I have found that therapists are were very valuable, as opposed to people who wanted to do the cutting and snipping. Um, and, and I just knew that the doctors were wrong, and, and I was determined to prove it. So, I mean, that's how we coped. I mean, we, we could see the results. We could see. I mean, I knew he was never going to be the prime minister of Canada, but who wants to be? No. You know? <laughs> God, what a job. Yeah. Um, and I think another really important thing is to get together with other parents. Talk about your issues. Um, it, the, to us, that it was huge because everybody then, you can comfort each other. You can, and everybody has a suggestion and, and it's, it's very, very helpful. Um, Another thing that, that folks can do is contact your community elective, elected representatives. The local elected officials are the people you can see and touch. They're in your, in your area, in your, in your town. And I, I, would, I would not underestimate the power of the, the parents going to them and saying, look, this is what we want. This is what we need. What are you going to do? Um, I think that's a very powerful tool that, 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 that people should use. And another um, powerful thing is to, is to try and fundraise for um, activities for, for folks. For if, if, if you deem um, that it's necessary to have a, um, a, a, an after-hours club or, or something of that nature, fundraise for it if it's not forthcoming from the government. Um, I, I was involved in fundraising for 40 years and, and, um, um, I, I just, I found that it was absolutely invaluable because it, it's a, it's a ripple effect. People become more aware. They're, they're, they're more interested in, in donating and getting involved. Um, but it, it's, it's tough. It, it's really tough. But, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, um, being Matthew's mother, uh, most times and, and, um, Quite honestly, he made a person of me. So we're very grateful to have had him. That's wonderful. Well, you know, it's uh, the one thing I think I was struck with, you know, because when uh, when I took a look at your book the first time and I read what it's about and I thought, oh, I don't know, is this going to be depressing, you know, or how is this going to turn out? And what I think I came away with more than anything else was just this sense of hope that uh, it, it was really amazing. I mean, you, you captured it all. You've got all the the frustration, the anger, but you've also got a lot of joy and laughter in it and everything else. And I just, I really feel that the, you know, the whole thing was just, uh, it, it made, it makes you feel hopeful about any kind of future. Well, thank you, John. I mean, that, that was one of my, one of my, um, goals. And the other one was of course, to raise awareness for folks like my son and, and other kids like him. And to if, if people read the book and look at 
people with disabilities differently and understand and their gifts and talents. That that's really all I wanted um, because it was so important to us to make people realize how how important he was to us and and uh, um, I. I, I I couldn't have asked for for a better goal in life, quite honestly. Now, um, finally, I think after everything that you've been through, that a parent of a special needs child could ever experience and more. You mean you you went through it all? What could you say to parents who are just starting out with their own children and uh, looking at the future, and they're just completely worried and stressed and concerned about what is going to happen and um, where they're going to be when things go on? What what could you say to them that, uh, you know, just some advice from where you are and compared to where they are? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is, is reach out. Um, I was I was worried about introducing Matthew to society for quite a long time because I, I, I just didn't want to. I mean, the, the R word kept coming up and I, oh, I, I, you don't want to admit that there's, there's really that much wrong and you're hoping that the kid will wake up one day and be, everything will be fine. Well, it just doesn't happen. So the sooner you start to reach out to the community groups that are available for, chi- for a child with, an, with, with your child's diagnosis or, um, and diagnosis maybe is the wrong word. I don't know, but you need to reach out to, to the other parents, to professionals, and even though you you may just get well, I, I don't know what to do. Find somebody else who does know, and it take it's a long journey. But if you don't, you'll be very alone, and that does not help you, and it certainly doesn't help the child. So um, associations, I'm I'm sure there. I know there are great associations in the U.S. because I have them on my website and. Um, and and it's 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 so things are so much better now for for kids uh, kids like ours. So reach out, reach out, reach out. That's that that's that's the most important thing. Right. Talk to others. Yeah. Get out into the community and make sure yep. everyone knows. Yeah. And and you find out. You get as much knowledge. Knowledge is power. Get as much knowledge as you can. And you're the person watching your child twenty four seven. If some doctor says to you. Oh, so and so will never hold his head up, like they said to Matthew, uh, to us about Matthew. And you know damn well your kid can hold his head up. Stick to your guns. You know your child. Um, don't be don't be swayed by some professional who hasn't got a clue about your particular child. Yep. Well, I've also found that some professionals, you know, as mean as well-meaning as they are, sometimes they don't even have uh, experience with a child who has uh, certain conditions or a certain diagnosis, and they're just going by what the textbook tells them. Yep, that's absolutely right. And it's frustrating and it's ignorant. And I'll tell you, if more physicians and more doctors and more politicians had kids with special needs, it would be a better life for our kids. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> Definitely. Because needs must. And, um, I mean, recently in, in Ontario, there's... Um, a woman who was running for the leadership of one of the parties. Um, she has three children, one of whom is, is disabled. And uh, boy, she did a lot for, for, for handicapped kids in the province of Ontario because she had a huge voice. That's great when you can have something like that. Yes, it is. It, 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 unfortunately, that, you're absolutely right. So there's nothing, there's no fairness. You, you have to uh, 
make people aware. And, and that's the only way that your child is going to progress. Make others aware of his or her needs, of your needs and, and rights. It's the human rights. Just basic human dignity. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, I just want to say, I think it was so courageous of you to uh, write this book because it's, you know, it's so personal and a lot of people would say, well, I just got to keep this to myself. But I think it helps so much when people put their stories out like that so that you uh, you can get an idea that there's others out there who have been through this. And there's a lot to be learned here. I think it's a, a really great book. And I wanted to thank you for doing that. Well, thank you, John, for, for recognizing what I was trying to do and, and for understanding what I was trying to do. It was just I just had to write it. I, I, I've been writing it since since I turned 50 and um, because I, I just felt that Matthew was an important person who survived and, and had a life despite um, huge odds against him. And he's he's one of millions of, of people who have survived regardless and um their lives are are very very important my thanks again to donna kirk her book finding matthew is available on amazon and we have links to both her book as well as her website and blog at donnakirk.com available on the special parents confidential webpage for this episode and as we always do at this point a reminder that if you like this episode of special parents confidential or any episode we've done Please share our site with your friends and family and all your connections on social media. You can do this easily with the social media buttons on our website. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, add us on Google+, or Tumblr, LinkedIn, Pinterest, StumbleUpon, Reddit, or any social media site you use. You can also sign up for our email service and have new posts and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher as a free subscription. And if you have a moment, feel free to write a review about our podcast. Anything you can do to help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential will help us to be able to continue these podcasts. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.